Heavenly Father, thanks that uh, you speak to us through your word. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so, Father, we pray that as we consider this part of your scriptures, that your spirit, who inspired them to be written, uh, would uh, work in our hearts so that we would learn the lessons that you want us to learn from it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're finishing our series on 1 Samuel, and we're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 27 to 31. You'll notice as we look at these, these chapters, the, uh, the scenes of this chapter, these chapters flick between Saul and David. You get David, and then you get Saul, and you get David, and you get Saul, and invite us to, to compare these two men. Both anointed ones, both chosen by God to be king, both sinful. But one of them is a man after God's own heart. And one has no heart for God. Who is the king that God's people really need? You may recall where we're up to in the story. Saul is the present king of Israel. But God had rejected him because of his disobedience. And God had promised that David would be king. And so Saul is jealous of David. He is trying to kill him. Though David, even though he has opportunity, will not lay a hand on Saul. Because he knows Saul is still God's anointed one. Well, finally, uh, David gets fed up of this um, hunting game. And he says in chapter 20, verse 1, that he's decided to leave Israel. He says, and I read, Now, sorry, 27, verse 1, eh? Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. Now, this seems a little bit odd. Because remember, God promised that David would be king. Is David failing to trust God's promises? Is he failing to trust that God can look after him? He's got to run away. If not, he'll perish. And he doesn't seem to seek God about it. In spite of the fact that he has with him a priest who has the ephod, where the stones, the Urim and Thurim, through, through which he could have asked God if he should do this. Furthermore, the last recorded word we have from a prophet, back in chapter 22, verse 5, was to go to Judah. And God had kept David safe there in Judah all this time. So, the move to flee to the Philistines has got question mark over it. Right? The narrator doesn't comment on it directly. It doesn't say, oh, that was a terrible thing that David did. But it does make us worry. David defects to the Philistines. He moves to Gath, a Philistine city, with all his 600 men and their families. There's a picture of modern day Gath there. And there in Gath, he was given asylum by Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Achish was an enemy of Israel. And David, well, by now he was well known as an outlaw from Israel. So as far as Achish was concerned, he had switched sides. So there was David, in the service of a Philistine king. Safe from the hunting of Saul. But David was God's anointed one. God's chosen king over his people. What's he doing in the service of a foreign king who was the enemy? Well, David was still actually loyal to God. He was still actually going about doing the job that Israel was meant to do. It was just that he was doing it in a sneaky way. Uh, first of all, he asked Achish for the chance to move away from the capital. He says in verse 5, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. 
For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? See, it's a very nice, humble way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah? You know, you're so great, I'm so small. I don't deserve the honor of living with you in this city. So, so please, let me go to a small country town. Although really, David's probably just going to escape the watchful eye of Akish. And Akish fell for it. Though, it may well be that he was under pressure from his own people, because such a big number of, of uh, Israelites just migrating into Gath might have caused resentment among them. Whatever it is, Akish lets him go, and he gives them a town called Ziglag. And the end of verse 6 tells us that Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, you'll see at the last chapter we look at, chapter 31, how Saul lost Israelite towns to the Philistines. But here, David is gaining a Philistine town for Israel by just asking. That's pretty good, isn't it? He was another bit of the promised land that went back into the Israelite people's hands. Another step in the fulfillment of God's plan to to bring the entire promised land under his people. But it wasn't just getting Ziklag. David continued to fight the enemies of God's people. God had declared that the inhabitants of the land before Israel were so evil that they deserved to be wiped out. And he commanded his people to do it and to take their land. But many of the people were left. And so from his base with the Philistines, David continued the work of clearing them. Look at verse 8. David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure the land of Egypt. Now notice, while he was under the protection of Achish, he didn't attack the Philistines. They take the other enemies of Israel, not the Philistines. But when he came back and uh, Akish asked him where he'd been raiding, what he would do is give the name of a town in Israel. He made sure everyone whom he attacked was killed, so the news wouldn't go back to Akish that had been raiding some other people. And Akish, thinking that David was killing Israelites, was therefore certain about his loyalty. He says, even if they... Even if he wanted to go back to their side, he he was sure they wouldn't take him. He says to himself in verse 12, He he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. So David has succeeded in convincing Achish of his loyalty, while at the same time using his protection to carry out the war that God's anointed one was meant to carry out against his enemies. So far, so good. However, David's tactics nearly come unstuck. So successful was he in convincing Akish of his loyalty that in chapter 28, Akish orders him to come to battle with him against none other than the Israelite army. And David agreed he could hardly do anything else. Although his answer in verse 2 is deceitfully ambiguous. He says, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Akish would have heard it one way. David might have meant it another. Yet Akish trusted David. In fact, his response was to make him personally responsible for his personal security. He says, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, the interesting thing is that the word bodyguard in Hebrew is literally my headkeeper, or guardian of my head. Now, remember what David did with the last Gathite's head that we've heard about? That was Goliath, wasn't it? Cut off his head. Kept it. So here's the David, who has cut off the head of Goliath, hero of Gath all those years before, now is responsible to protect the head of the king of Gath. But what would he do when he got to the battle? Would he fight against his own people? Or would he be treacherous against the king who has been protecting him and who trusted him? 
And now even more strongly we think, hmm, I think David must have done the wrong thing in going there. Yeah? Meanwhile, Saul was also with the enemies of God's people. But in a different way. You see, the first part of that Philistine army had already gone up to fight with Saul in the battle. They were camped at Shunem. Can you see Shunem there? On the, on the screen? You see the two, you see the two lakes? All right? The top lake is the Sea of Galilee. And a little bit, about 7 o'clock from that, you can see Shunem. Now, so, the, the um, Philistines were camped at Shunem, and the Israelites were camped at uh, Mount Gilboa, which was on the other side of the valley. Uh, the valley between them is called the Valley of Jezreel. And the picture there is, uh, is Mount Gilboa. This Philistine army was a big army. It wasn't just one town in Philistine's army. It wasn't just like Achish of Gath. In fact, Achish of Gath hadn't even got there yet. There was a whole lot of Philistine cities joined together forces in order to fight Saul. And Saul was terrified. But when he inquired of God, God wouldn't answer him. There was stony silence. With all the ways that people used to inquire of God back then. The Lord didn't answer him by dreams. Or by Urim, that, that stone and that ephod that the priests used well. After all, Saul had killed all the priests, hadn't he? Except for the one guy who got away who was now in David's service. Not even the prophets were hearing anything. Saul was desperate. Again. So desperate that he did something he, he knew he should not do. Verse 7 of chapter 28. Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. God wasn't speaking to Saul. But he had spoken very clear through Moses. And this is what he had said in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And notice, it wasn't just a rule for the people of Israel. The Lord didn't allow them to do it. But one of the reasons that God was punishing the people who lived in the land before Israel was precisely because they were doing those things. So it's not just one of those Israel-God things. This is God's will for all nations and all people. Fortune tellers, sorcerers, spiritists, charmers, medium, not allowed. And that still applies today. We must have nothing to do with that kind of thing. Now we don't need them anyway. You don't need to get your palm read, do you? All we need to know for salvation, all we need to know to live a godly life in Christ, God has already told us. There is never a time that we are so desperate that we need to seek a fortune teller. Some of them may be fakes. Some of them may be harnessing spiritual forces that we don't understand. We're not meant to understand. And working out which is which is not important. We're told very clearly, stay clear of it all. Friends have nothing to do with the occult. Being popularized at the moment. It's always been there in our culture. It is evil. Don't fear it. Don't obsess about it. Just ignore it and stay away. And if you've been dabbling with it and if you hadn't repented, then 
repent and cry to God for help. Because Jesus can forgive you. Jesus can deliver you. By his death on the cross, he has won the victory over all the powers of darkness. But do what he says and have nothing to do with it. If you want to pray with someone about it, you're welcome to come and see me afterwards or talk to another Christian friend. Some things were never meant to be part of. We ignore this warning to our peril. Now Saul was perfectly aware of this. In fact, he was the one who rightly banned banned spiritism from Israel. And yet Saul, desperate for a fresh word from God, disobeyed the word that God had already spoken. Again. He disguised himself and went to see a medium in Endor. Now, if you go from Mount Gilboa to Endor, if you draw a straight line between the two, you have to go right through the middle of Shunem, where the Philistines were camped. So obviously Saul had to go the long way, the detour all the way around. And he went by night in disguise. He didn't want the Philistines or the medium to, to know who he was. And when he first spoke to the medium, she wouldn't help him. She was afraid that this was a trap. And not knowing who he was, she reminded him of his own policy in verse 9. He said, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Would this be a wake-up call for Saul? A reminder of the wicked thing he was about to do? Well, verse 10. Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And no punishment for Saul, at least. But on the basis of his oath, she agreed to help him. Who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel for me. Interesting. Most people would have come to her, would have asked her for, you know, friends or relatives or this guy, he's asking for the prophet. <gasps> she suddenly screamed. Because she has really seen Samuel. Perhaps she's realized that this is for real when other seances were, were fakes or demonic. Or perhaps she does regularly conjure up uh, the dead, uh, but was afraid because Samuel. And he doesn't like this kind of thing. Or whatever the reason for the screen sheet she'd immediately realize that that the person she was dealing with, that Samuel comes up for, is is Saul. And she says to him in verse 12, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? I see a God coming up out of the earth. What is his appearance? An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. See, some people think this is a demon. Or some people think this is a fake in some way. But the text seems to say it was Samuel, wasn't it? Samuel wasn't impressed. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul says, well, I was in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. What? God has stopped talking to Saul, and so Saul is conjuring up the, the prophet of God in direct violation of God's commandments, so the prophet will tell him what to do? As if Samuel, the prophet of God, will speak independently of God? Samuel speaks to him and he tells him off in no uncertain terms. Why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. What an awful thing for God to be your enemy. 
Because if you have God as an enemy, then your situation is completely hopeless. If God is your enemy, there is no point running, there is no point fighting, there is no point trying. You are absolutely ruined. You cannot hope to take on the creator of the universe. No one can help you, not even the prophet Samuel. It's a terrible thing to become the enemy of the living God. Why do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. And he continues. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You see, what God was doing was no secret. He'd already told Saul years before. Back when Saul was disobedient to God, when he failed to completely destroy the Amalekites, as God told him to, God warned him through Samuel that his kingdom would be torn away from him and be given to a neighbor better than he. And now surely Saul knew who that neighbor was. Samuel tells him again, God has given the kingdom to David. And then he tells him something he doesn't already know. Verse 29. Now verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The army of Israel will be defeated. Saul and his sons will be as dead as Samuel by the next day. How would you react if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow? One day you'll be dead. That's be true one day, because one day you'll be dead and, you know, one day you'll die, and the day before that you'll die tomorrow, won't you? How would you react if you knew that? Well, Saul was terrified. Verse 20. Saul fell at once, falling from the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength left in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. So, so there is Saul, king of Israel. Rejected by God, about to be killed, a panic-stricken mess on the floor. How sad that Saul should end up that way. He started off well, so well. But starting off well is not good enough. You have to persevere and you have to finish well. Brothers and sisters, there are numbers of people here who have started off well in the Christian life. You love Jesus, you read his word, you pray, you tell others about him, but it's not enough to start off well. You have to persevere. You need to finish well. You need to keep trusting Jesus all the way to the end. You need to pray that God will deliver you from the evil one who wants to make you fall like Saul. You need to keep on meeting with God's people. Keep on encouraging each other. Keep on pressing each other on to love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching. We have to run the race to the end. Do not fall away and become an enemy of God. Because if you think that Saul's situation was tragic, let me warn you, hell is far, far worse. Please, brothers and sisters, do not become like Saul. There's Saul, lying on the ground, filled with fear. Would that be a good thing? 
Is there a tinge of hope? Perhaps in his fear and trembling, Saul will call out to God and beg him for mercy. Perhaps if he knew he was about to die, he would cry out for pardon. He would acknowledge his sins and beg God to forgive him. But he does nothing of the sort. See, he is distracted by the medium, who seems to have genuine concern for him. She begs him to eat, and initially he refuses. His men tell him the same thing, and in the end they get the bread and the meat that she's prepared, and, and you know, he sits and he eats, and he gets up and he leaves. And he still hasn't made peace with his creator. Have you ever met people who plan to live away from God and then come to him just before they die? Because they know he's merciful. Have you people like that? Yeah, I have. And let me tell you, it is not a good plan. Sure, God will forgive you and accept you through Jesus if you genuinely repent and cry out for mercy in your deathbed. Happened to the thief on the cross, essentially, isn't it? It does happen. But God is not mocked. Can't muck around with him. Who's to say he'll give you the opportunity to do so? And even with the opportunity, who's to say that you will? You may be crippled with fear, sedated with morphine, or distracted by well-meaning others. Don't be a fool. You need to repent and do so now, before it's too late. The story now shifts from Saul back to David who is marching. Remember, he's marching with the Philistines on the way of the battle to fight the Israelites. Fight Saul. Hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands, rather, of Philistines. And Achish has got David marching at the back of the line. David's got to go with them, because otherwise his loyalty would be suspect, but what a terrible situation to be in. It's the armies of Israel versus the armies of Philistine and the anointed one of Israel is on the side of the Philistines. There are three things that could happen from here. Firstly, God could use David on one side and the Israel army on the other side and crush the Philistines in between them. And give a mighty victory to Israel. That would make David a traitor. And anyway, we know the prophecy from the prophecy to Saul that that's not what God plans to do. Secondly, God could give the Philistines a victory over Israel and David would be part of it. How could God's anointed one defeat his own people? God used him so many times to save his people. The anointed one saves God's people, doesn't do the opposite. Or thirdly, God could very graciously get him out of this mess that he has generated. Well, David and his army are marching with the army from Gath. And the other Philistine rulers from the other cities start questioning Akish. They go... Why have you got Hebrew soldiers to fight against the Hebrew people? You know, doesn't work. Lucky says, no, don't worry. It's David, ex-servant of Saul, deserted to me. I'm okay. He's okay. I can vouch for him, all right? And the other Philistine ruler said, no, no way. You can't trust him. He's one of them. Send him back home. He might turn on us in battle. And Akish calls David. He really likes him. He really trusts him. He says in chapter 29, verse 6, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, yeah, right, you've been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. 
For I found nothing wrong in you from the time of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, the laws don't approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the laws of the Philistines. Now, David could have gone, but you know, he presses a little bit more. He pretends to be all innocent and outraged. And you go to verse 8. What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Again, notice double speak. Are the enemies of my Lord the King the enemies of Akish or the enemies of Saul? You don't know, do you? Akish doesn't notice. He says to David, verse 9. I know you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of the Lord. Nevertheless, the commander of the Philistines has said, He shall not come up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And so, <laughs> David must have been very relieved, and he reluctantly turns back. God spares him from fighting his own people on the one hand, or treachery on the other. Once again, God rescues David, even in the presence of his enemies. God is very, very, very gracious to his friends. But in chapter 30, when David and his men, they gone up and turned around and head back down again and they get back to, back to their hometown of Ziglag, he and his friends get a nasty shock. Because all that's left there is a smoldering ruin. You see, the Amalekites, another group of people that Israel had meant to have removed from the land, they had come in and raided the town. They had burnt it to the ground. And had taken all the women and children. And David and his men looked around their home. They saw they lost their wives and their children. And they sat down and wept. And they wept and they wept until they could weep no more. They had lost their family. They had left them defenseless when they had gone off to war with the Philistines. And now the Amalekites had taken their wives and children as slaves, or worse, with all their possessions. Leaving like that, that, that was a mistake, wasn't it? In fact, coming down to this whole thing was a mistake. But they didn't achieve anything. They just marched halfway up the, halfway up the country and marched halfway back down again. Leaving. What happened to their home, their family, their and some of David's men were beginning to get disgruntled with his leadership. He was the one who had got them into this situation. It's easy afterwards, isn't it? With the benefit of hindsight to criticize. They were bitter. Blame David. He even talked about stoning him. With his own men. But David says in verse 6, Strengthen himself in the Lord his God. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of grief, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of stress, in the midst of revolt, in the midst of despair, David did not become bitter. He went to God. He would have poured out his heart to God, like you see in the Psalms. He would have been reminded of God's word, that God's promise does not fail. People went on a blame rampage. David went to God. And David called the priest, Abiathar. Did what he should have done before. He called him to use his ephod as a priest to inquire of God. David asked God, Shall I pursue the Amalekites who did this? God says, Yes. He wasn't talking to Saul, but he was talking to David. And so David takes us 600 men and he goes to chase the Amalekites. Right, they go all the way down to that uh, brook that you can see down the bottom there, south of Ziklag, and 200 of them are so exhausted, they say, okay, you stay behind, look after the baggage, and the other 400, let's keep on giving chase. And as they went, it so happened, in, in God's providence that is, 
that they found an Egyptian slave that an Amalekite owner had had uh, left behind because he was sick. And they fed him, they nursed him, they questioned him, and they got him to help them show, show them where the Amalekites were going to go and to hunt them down. And so David and his men eventually found these Amalekites. And what the Amalekites were doing when they found them, they were, they were having this huge party to celebrate their success. They were eating and drinking and dancing. They were having a great time because they had been, they had been wildly successful. They, it wasn't just Ziklag they had plundered. They had taken spoils for numbers of towns, both Philistine and, uh, and, and Israelite. And while they were in that state, completely unprepared, David and his men came in and slaughtered them. Spent 24 hours slaughtering them all. And what seemed like a tiny minority of them escaped. 400 men on hot camels ran away. Yet remember that small minority was the same number as David had in his entire force. Which shows how unlikely David was to have won from a human point of view. And how really God was the one who gave a miraculous triumph here. David brought back all the spoils of war, reversed everything that he and his friends had lost, their wives, their children, their possessions, everything is restored. And in fact, he gets lots, lots more in terms of flocks and herds and livestock because of all the other plunder that they've got from other places. And so the wealth of all these other towns and cities are now, is now in the hands of David. That's pretty good, isn't it? When David came back to his 200 men that he left behind, some of those who had gone for the battle were a bit stingy. They said, look, these guys didn't come out with us to fight. So they don't get a share of the spoils. Of course, they can have their wives and children back, that's fine, but, you know, we did the work, we did the fighting, we get to keep it. But David knows that they did nothing of the sort. He says in verse 23, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. You see, God was the one who gave them the victory. There was no way they could have won otherwise. And because David really believed this, it was just pious platitudes. You know, oh yeah, God, God is the one who gave us. But actually, you know, that's the man's fight. No, he really believed it. And because he really believed it, it made a difference in how he distributed the spoils. They all share alike. Victory was from God, not from the soldiers who won the battle. So they were all shared in the spoils. In fact, David shares his spoils even more widely. He sends presents to the elders of the various cities in Judah. That's a very clever thing to do if you want to become king, isn't it? All the places that he'd roamed when running away from Saul, they received gifts of plunder with a message. In verse 26. Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now, the word present there is actually the word for blessing. Literally, here is a blessing for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. What does it show? David is saving God's people. He's plundering God's enemies. And he's bringing blessing to the nation. That's what the anointed one was meant to do. And so from what looked like tragedy, God brought blessing for his people. Blessing to his people come in abundance through the one. Cameron Cain's Changes back to Saul. Saul is also fighting. That battle against the Philistines had begun. And the Philistines had begun their onslaught against the Israelite army. You see, without God on their side, the Israelite army was pathetic. In fact, they turned around and fled. And as the army ran, the Philistines ran after them. 
And many were slain on Mount Gilboa as they ran away. And verse 2 of chapter 31, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. Saul's hope for a dynasty had been crushed. Even Jonathan, good old Jonathan, a righteous man who submitted to David, even he was not spared in the onslaught. It would be very unfair if there was no such thing as the final judgment in eternal life, but no. Saul continued to retreat. But the fighting around him became more and more fierce. The Philistines were catching up with him. And finally one of their archers found the mark. Arrow struck him. He was fatally wounded. Saul knew he wasn't going to make it back alive. The Philistine army was closing in. And he called to his armor bearer in verse 4. Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the he didn't want the Philistines to come and torture him to death. Get it over quickly. But his armor bearer refused. He was too afraid. And rightly so. You, you cannot touch God's anointed. And so Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. He committed suicide. And Saul, in his last act of sin, did what David refused to do. He killed the Lord's anointed one. And just to compound the tragedy, when his armor bearer saw what happened, he fell on his own sword and died with him. And the rest of the army were decimated as they desperately tried to flee the, the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. So verse 6 tells us that Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Just as Samuel had said. But that's not the end of the story. The people who lived, the people of Israel who lived in the area, they were now defenseless. They abandoned their cities and fled. Better to be refugees than victims of massacre because they knew the Philistines were going to come in and they had no one left to defend them. And the Philistines came in and they took over their cities and they lived in them. So Israel was meant to defeat the Philistines and take over their cities and take over the land, but now the opposite is happening. Because God was acting in judgment on his king and his people. But even that's not the end of the story. Saul did not rest in peace. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons. They cut off his head. Stripped off his armor. He sent messages to their pagan temple around the land. They put their armor in the temple of their God as if their God had given them the victory. And they took the headless body of Saul, and the bodies of his sons, and they fastened them to a wall in a Philistine town. It was later when the men of an Israelite town called Jabesh Gilead heard about this. Some of them actually went back and stole the bodies from those, from those walls. Remember how Saul had started well? Well, right near the beginning of his reign, he had saved the people of Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. And now, right at the end, they in, they in turn, they rescue his mutilated corpse and bring it back. And bring his corpse and that of his sons back to Jabesh burned their flesh, removed their bones and gave their bones a decent burial under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh. They mourned for him in fasting for seven days. And then was the end of that tragic story. There's no recovery for Saul. No happy ever after. Saul had been made king because the people of Israel wanted a king like the other nations had. 
a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. In Saul, that was what they got. A king like the kings of the nations. But a king like the kings of the nations could not ultimately lead them to success. Because under the covenant, success depended on faithfulness and obedience. And a king like the kings of the nations was sinful, not faithful. And so 1 Samuel ends in tragedy. And we see just how much Israel needs a leader who is after God's own heart. Israel needs God's king, David. And yet even as he heads towards becoming king, we get a hint, even without the commentary, that David too is flawed. Because as the story flicks between David and Saul, we realize there are big differences but there are also similarities. I'm not denying for a moment the big contrast we have between these two men in these passages. In the second story of David, in his defeat of the Amalekites, we see, we see the contrast with Saul very clearly. God is guiding David, stonewalling Saul. David is lo- uh, Saul is losing the battle, losing ground to the Philistines. David is wiping out the Amalekites and gaining blessing for his people as Big contrast there. But there are two stories of David here. And the first one, he's in exile with the Philistines. And while there are good things about it, and God brought good out of it, David David successfully continued the work of the anointed one while doing it. It does look like a mistake on David's part. It comes from forgetting to trust God for protection. Of deceptive behavior. Nearly involves being put in the spot of fighting his own people. It was a little bit like Saul's being with God's enemy in Endor. Not entirely like it, of course, but it's a bit like it. David sought refuge in the enemies of God's people. And yet, God was gracious to David. He rescued him from his dilemma. It's a big contrast between David and Saul. But seeing this passage warns us, just as he is about to become king, that David is not perfect. And when you flick between him and Saul, the contrast is not quite as great as you'd like it to be. And you realize that despite all the build-up over the last chapters, David's kingship is not going to be a perfect kingship either. And we realize that we need another anointed one, a perfect Messiah, King Jesus. Jesus really was the opposite of how Saul was in this passage. Saul started well, but he finished badly. Jesus not only started well, but he finished well. Saul was faithless and disobedient. Jesus was faithful unto death. Saul and Jesus both knew they were going to die the day before they did. But the way they handled it couldn't have been more different. The night before he died, Saul shared a meal with his men under the influence of a medium who had just helped him sin. The night before he died, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples, teaching them to remember his death as God's great rescue from sin. Saul was petrified at his coming death and and found consolation in the distractions of God's enemy. Jesus committed himself and his, heaven, and, his, and his friends to his heavenly Father. Saul led his people to battle the following day to a crushing defeat and loss of land. Jesus went out the following day to battle, to fight on behalf of God's people, to save us from sin 
and death and hell. Saul and Jesus both died under the judgment of God. Saul died for his own sins. And Jesus died for your sins and mine. Taking the punishment on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. So that though we were once God's enemies, like so, God could be gracious to us like he was today. And we could be his friends. Israel needed David much more than they needed Saul. But the ultimate king that God's people need is not David, but Jesus. The perfect king who saved us from our sins, who fought on our behalf the cross, and will come again to judge the world. And so brothers and sisters, as Christmas approaches, we once again thank God for sending us Jesus, our King. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the perfect king who rules us by his word. Whoever lives, who who rules us in, in truth and justice. Thank you that he is the king who Humbled himself to come and die for us and take our sins. And in doing so came to save us, your people. And thank you that through him all your blessings come to us. Help us, Lord, to follow him as our king. Help us, Lord, not to be like Saul who sought guidance from the occult. Guard us, Lord. Keep us away from that. Help us, Lord, to keep following King Jesus to the very end. Not just be people who start off well, but who persevere. strengthen us to walk with our King to love our King to follow our King until the day comes when he returns in power and triumph to judge the world we pray this in his name